Alright, hey, hey y'all. I'm uh, excited about this because I'm going to be talking about Baudrillard's fourth book, The Mirror of Production, where he uh, really digs his claws into Marx, but a little more specifically what people have done with Marx, which is much of a uh, preamble or preface to the same kind of critique he levels against Foucault later in, um, in Forget Foucault. Now this book is funny for a, a number of reasons. First of all, the cover of the version I have is, is Marx, um, or a picture of Marx being crucified on a big cog, like something of like a factory type setting, I would assume, uh, which I think is, um, it's an appropriate cover for the project that, that Baudrillard uh, undertakes here. Another thing that's funny about this, and this is uh, revealed in the introduction by Mark Poster, is that, as far as I know, this is the first instance that critics of Baudrillard have taken him to task for using quotes and stuff that they can't, they can't seem to find anywhere. They don't know where he gets them from. So we're, when we get to those, I'll, I'll bring them up. And I've done my own research, because it's one author specifically with one text. Um, I haven't been able to find that stuff either, which is, it, it affected Baudrillard, how people read him, how he was received in the, in the critical uh, intellectual spheres, you know, as not being uh, a serious thinker, as being someone that didn't, you know, abide by the proper regulations of um, intellectual, you know, whatever, the rules that guide it, the unwritten codes or whatever. But in, in this case, it, it is a fairly well-written code that you have to cite things properly in order to be considered legitimate. So Baudrillard begins his book in the preface by stating, A specter haunts the revolutionary imaginary. So clearly playing off of, uh, playing off of Marx. And the Communist Manifesto, you know, a specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism, that thing that's looming. The thing that's on um, that that is inevitably going to uh, reveal itself, you know. But specters never reveal themselves in in very obvious ways. Which, you know, thinking back to Marx, it would seem odd that he would use that analogy because a specter only ever reveals itself. You know, we think of the most um, kind of. Uh, silly example where, like in, from Beetlejuice with the, the ghosts with the sheets on them. The, the specter then is only constituted as a specter, not by its, you know, physical embodiment of a certain space that, you know, that you can then see as being um, kind of taken off or, or mapped off due to the um, corporality of the specter but by the specters being determined by the thing that covers it, the sheet in this instance, or the noises it makes, things that don't actually point to its being, you know, with body, whatever that might mean. So in a sense, Marx was sort of predicting, you know, communism, and even today, I think of like conferences, like Zizekian type conferences that, you know, the hyper-realistic type like, communism exists in, in like certain spaces 
um, you have to still abide by the certain like capitalist logic that ultimately it's you know something that can't be overthrown if you will something that can't totally be overhauled so it has to exist only in these certain spheres and I think that that like the specter that makes noises in certain places or whatever that only makes itself apparent at certain instances so often at night so often in the you know the Victorian mansion tormenting the nuclear family or whatever but this specter for Baudrillard is not one of communism but it's one of production which is the basis for his whole argument in that he doesn't feel that uh, the revolutionary imaginary the revolutionary imagination as it has manifested itself in Marxism critical theory more broadly has not been able to capture uh, the essence of um, a radical counter discourse hasn't, hasn't been able to effectively grasp it so he goes on to say that everywhere it the revolutionary imaginary the phantom of production sustains an unbridled romanticism of productivity the critical theory of the mode of production does not touch the principle of production all the concepts it articulates describe only the dialectical and historical genealogy of the contents of production leaving production as a form intact so this is a, a difficult thing to swallow, uh, even even for myself. It, it does uh, fail to get at or, or recognize the, I guess, the pragmatics uh, associated or, or taken up via Marxist theory, and and it comes out in all the you know even if we think of Marxism in the most cynical, pessimistic way we can, you know we think Soviet Russia or. Um, you know, like Khmer Rouge or whatever, uh, there is, even though it can obviously manifest itself in awful, awful forms, um, it doesn't just, as Baudrillard states here, it doesn't just start describe the dialectical and historical genealogy. There is something more to it, and that, that is something he addresses, but it's interesting that he disavows that right off the bat, because obviously, you know, you had the Gulag or Pelago coming out like just a few years before this, um, all, all these, um, it was being, it was becoming world knowledge what, what exactly was going on. So then he goes on, to, he pokes fun at the, the approaches that have sought to render productive modes of critical theory. So, for instance, you know, the unconscious is surrounded in social, linguistic, and eatable structures. Let us give it back its brute energy. Let us restore it as a productive machine. And this machine... Um, you know, talk is is a poke at Deleuze, of of whom he says, um, you know, from the liberation of productive forces and the unlimited textual productivity of Telquel to Deleuze's factory machine, productivity of the unconscious, including the labor of the unconscious, no revolution can take place itself under any other sign in that productivity guides revolution, right? There must be a certain um, adoption of um, what and this is this is a problematic uh, conflation where Baudrillard, you know, says that production and capitalism are two things that go hand in hand. Hence the title, you know, the mirror of production. Whereas, you know, I think a a very um, clever Marxist person would say that no, we, if production doesn't occur if production is for the sake of a certain you no know, profit motive, right? Because then production isn't. For the sake of satisfying needs, right, it's creating them or whatever. You know, you could insert the kind of scripted answer to that there. But 
it holds on nonetheless because Baudrillard is making a conflation here. But his, his, uh, his point is interesting in that he says that everywhere productivist discourse reigns, whereas he, he sees the, the only possibility of there to be like something of a revolutionary turn, if we can possibly think of one in that way, or the approach to a radical theory, which is what I would argue his whole corpus is trying to develop, right, over the course of his however many 40 books, trying to develop something of a radical theory, it can't rely on the same capital P productivist type discourse, right, where we think, okay, in the 1950s Marxist camp, let's render, you know, thinking of Marcuse, let's render the, you know, unconscious productive. Or what Baudrillard says of Kristeva, Julia Kristeva, in one of the, in Cool Memories, one of his Cool Memories, he says that if there is a thing called the unconscious, as there is in Kristeva, there cannot be, I guess, it can't be rendered, made, uh, be viewed as correlative to some kind of political uh, force agenda aside, which in the case of Kristeva, which you can be argued with uh, Marcuse, the unconscious is suspiciously left-wing, you know, and of course we, we could problematize that a little bit, you know, thinking of like how Thanatos plays a certain role, but there's something to be said about how an unconscious somehow embodies uh, left-wing politics, at least what he says of Kristeva, when in fact if there is something that, like an unconscious if such a thing does exist, it surely does not lend itself to some sort of political analysis. In fact, it's something that transcends that. It's something that precedes it. It's something that do doesn't have... Um, it, it, it's not the embodied manifestation of some sort of political discourse. So he goes on to remind us, in this, in, still in the preface here, uh, the similar project he was he conducted in uh, for a critique of the political economy of the sign, in that... Um, an evaluation of signs, the evaluation of signifiers, you know, as opposed to thinking about things as having, um, a, you know, a fundamental, universal kind of use value, uh, is is lost in in Marxist thought. There just there's a, a startling a startling absence of an analysis of signs of signification, right? But there is an exegetical quality to it. Marx is not. Um, not an incompetent, or was not an incompetent thinker. In fact, Marx was heavy-handed. He he was he was someone that could, you know, tear apart any sort of uh, specific thing, right? And in that way, you know, it can be read that he did, in a sense, kind of commit himself to the realm of science. Because how do you dealing with like textual type um, arrangements? How do you possibly, you know, get to suggest there to be like a bare bones type, like a real thing existing behind it. But I think Baudrillard is, makes a good point. And of course, for more on that, like the, the last, uh, his last book, which I, which I did here would, it explains that a little bit more. So that leads, that leads us into the first chapter. So what, what Baudrillard says right off the bat, all the fund fundamental concepts of Marxist analysis must be questioned, which is beyond fair. There are things that about it that certainly need to be overhauled. And it, it strikes me as odd, because to this day, you know, we think of Marx as being written so many, so many, many years ago. Uh, there, there's still an odd move 
to apply his theory in ways that he has become, as though he hasn't become uh, irrelevant or outdated, which makes me suspicious. And for Baudrillard to sit, be saying this in like the early 70s, right? You know, and you had, you had Foucault saying something similar in the, uh, the order of things, you know, I can't remember this off the top of my head. He says in the order of things, um, Marxism in the 18th century is like a fish in the water. Like it can't breathe anywhere else. Now that, that passage by Foucault essentially um, is what, what Baudrillard is doing here. And why is that? Like, what is it about Marx's theory that doesn't get at what's going on today? Where perhaps it had some, you know, this sort of raw validity at one point, right? You're thinking of, you know, the clear split between uh, workers and the, the bourgeois, the aristocracy or whatever. And how that kind of relationship played itself out, kind of lending itself to an easy kind of Hegelian dialectical scheme. But now, you know, having all things kind of melt together, you know, the, the distinction between worker and um, owner is, is much more difficult to, to ground, kind of throwing a wrench in the, you know, the easy kind of dialectical um, drive between, or the movement between like slave and slave owner. How, how, do, how do we reconcile Marx in that in, today? What, what can we do with him? And people do do it. I'm just suspicious of any such um, attempts to do such a thing. So he states of this that the liberation of productive forces is confused with the liberation of man. And of course, we problematize this use of the word man, you know, something that... Uh, at least, you know, other French thinkers of the time, like Deleuze and Guattari, were certainly cognizant of. Now, for Baudrillard, it doesn't matter, just using this term man, but... It's not, that's for another talk, but for now. He then goes on to say, is this a revolutionary formula, or that of political economy itself? So, is this equation of a certain liberation of the productive forces with the liberation of man, right? And again, it's, it, I'm going to keep coming back to like Marcuse in the sense, right? Thinking about liberation of um, a certain, of, you know, leaving more uh, leisure hours for the individual is in a sense, you know, liberating human experience as though that time is just magically going to be filled up with kind of non-productive yet productive in a certain creative capacity way, which which is... Odd. It seems like an epistemic fallacy, right? Like a leap of faith. How do you possibly, you know, think that doing one will lead to the other? And it, it's there. There is certainly weight to it, but we have to we have to be suspicious and we have to be careful. So what what he then goes on to say is that almost no one had doubted such ultimate evidence that, you know, equating the two, liberation of one with the liberation of the other, especially not Marx, for whom men, and he's quoting Marx here, begin to distinguish themselves from animals as soon as they begin to produce their means of subsistence. And then in quotes, not in quotes, in brackets, Baudrillard says, Why must man's vocation always be to distinguish himself from animals? Humanism is an idefix, which also comes from political economy. In that, you know... In Marx, there, what place do does do animals hold, right? As you know, and then he says, of course, we don't really have time to talk about that now, which is fair. But 
animals don't fall under the same kind of criteria of labor. In fact, it's that lack of criteria or, you know, lack of Dasein, if you will, that, you know, allows us to distinguish ourselves from them, in effect, uh, giving ourselves an identity, right, as being separate from that, like the kind of um, Derridian-type deferral, you know, not, I am what this is, I am what I am because I am not what that is, or, you know, so on and so forth, the endless, like, tracer, the, the sequence that goes on for infinity. So what Marx did, and this is what uh, Baudrillard, Baudrillard identifies in him very roughly and very broadly, is that Marx um, deconstructed labor, or bifurcated labor into two broad camps, that is, exchange value, or what is called abstract social labor, and then concrete labor, use value. And these, this, these, the same formula can be applied to things as they exist, right? Uh, what value does you know, a pendant have? would fall under the camp of exchange value, right, in type Marxist-type analysis, whereas a shovel, you know, would have a certain use value or a pick, uh, or a pickaxe or whatever, in that it has a direct attachment to the earth, if you will, like, Arentian toiling uh, with the earth as homo favor, you know, man using his hands, the big man who works. Uh, this idea kind of associated with the romanticizing one's relationship with earth, with labor, with power, in a sense, which is runs through um, Marx. And, it, and it's there's a commitment to a certain productivity there, right? Even in the critique of it, ironically enough. So this loss of, at least coming into this capitalist mode of production, or what capitalism sort of sequesters, is the relationship between use value and its being useful, if you will, or, you know, uh, things existing, or there being that, that very clear split between one thing and another, in the, from exchange value to um, use value, in, you know, Marx is saying the capitalist mode of production, like, if we think of, like, owning a business, right, you know, accumulate a certain degree of capital, profits, or whatever, go back in a certain uh, percentage of the profits or whatever, how that's calculated in a certain instance, is put back into the system, back into the business, back into this or that, you know, used to improve certain things or whatever. And it keeps going on and the cycle continues, continues, continues until like we think of, you know, to butcher it a little bit, thinking of like the um, Barthian Argonauts, like the boat or the ship or whatever. Um, to, what, to what point does the original sort of use of those things that make up that business start becoming more and more abstract in that there's no real connection to the things being produced but there's just that um, unyielding uh, attention to the accumulation of capital right to use uh, Luxembourg's uh, terminology where there's you know things are only in the service of producing more capital which in effect re is recycled at least a portion of it back into their the existence of the things that work to produce that capital, where it's not for the satisfaction of needs, but like this endless cycle, this perpetual cycle. So uh, Marx identifying that happening in the capitalist mode of production for, for Baudrillard, at least his romanticism of there being this kind of inherent use value that, that exists in the world. For Baudrillard, that what it does is uh, it retains something in 
this is his word, has retained something of the apparent movement of political economy, the concrete positivity of use value, a kind of concrete antecedent within the structure of political economy. Where we can, you know, it, it's ironic, but in a sense, the uh, secret logic to capitalism is that belief in the satisfaction of needs. So in a sense, Baudrillard is just being kind of Hegelian about it. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't want to undermine um, capitalism as having, like, no logic, right? Or those people caught under it, having no systematic logic to it. Or simply, like, this schizo-type, you know, that extremely problematic Deleuzean term. Um, not being, uh, some, just being, like, a co uh, an incoherent-type mass. Like, this, this blob, or this, this kind of free-floating thing, right? Um, so in that, in that way, Baudrillard wants to think about there being like, you know, people actually having needs satisfied through exchange value, right? It's not just use value that satisfies needs. Like, it's important to think about how people, like, live, how people experience their lives, not just in relation to the land or their, like, putting food from the earth into their uh, mouths, right? To... to keep themselves alive, but how much more there is to the world, and how Marx, at least for Baudrillard, when Marx maintains that there is, you know, a real form of use value, it is only, it's like taking capitalism to the nth power, right? Taking capitalism, completing capitalism's project, at least that's in a sense what Baudrillard is trying to say here. So by relying in a sense on this um, mode of production or on this um, transcendental sort of use value paradigm, Baudrillard says of Marx that, says of Marx in, a, in a, this sentence, failing to conceive of a mode of social wealth other than that founded on labor and production, Marxism no longer furnishes in the long run a real alternative to capitalism, sort of passive sentence. Uh, it's kind of annoying to read, but the point is that to what extent, or Baudrillard is trying to say, to what extent does Marx rely on some underlying themes or ideas uh, apparent in capitalism in order to push his own analysis, in order to develop his own theory, and in that sense, to what extent does it just mirror it, does it just uh, replicate it? So what, what is uh, oppressive, at least for Baudrillard uh, here, is that under political economy, right, under the capitalist mode of production, which I should be something I should have clarified earlier, is not something he celebrates. He, he is not um, at all in favor of uh, capitalist uh, expansion. And uh, this, I will digress momentarily. There, there are people who read in Baudrillard uh, a sort of accelerationist type politics, which would be one of the most incorrect things I've ever heard. Not to say that you can't dig out certain passages that would advocate sort for a, a coming to an end. But I think Baudrillard is very conservative. There's no denying this. Baudrillard doesn't have, you know, he's not interested in accommodating a sort of left-wing political framework. Kind of. He, he does, you know, he's very critical of the, the time of Le Pen. 
He does have many writings on politics, um, the political stuff going on at the time, and he is in by no means someone who falls under the camp of the right or the camp of the left per se. You know, he was the thinker of radical theories that don't um, don't align with political thought, which is fair. But in that way, he saw that the only real end to like this sort of system, you know, it doesn't come out in the form of Marxism or any sort of critical theory, but is through an implosion, in a sense, or a total destruction of the system, which isn't something he necessarily called for, per se, but it's something that he said is, is kind of the only way we'll get out of it, right? And that doesn't, shouldn't undermine like current political efforts because he has these odd moments when he says something like graffiti is a mode of resistance right or art more generally can can occupy that or perform that function or he says of hendrix like hendrix's version of the star spangled banner it's one of those kind of resistive practices which doesn't say that these things don't exist right what ends they serve like perhaps Baudrillard just wants us and and we can read a method, as take his methodology from here and say, like, okay, in my sort of resistive practices or whatever, whatever I'd conceive to be, if, if I conceive them to be as such, to what extent do they work within the system itself and to what extent do they actually resist it and not just kind of duplicate that which I'm trying to criticize. So, to return, you know, thinking about... Um, Social labor, or not social labor, think of political economy, he says that, and Marx's kind of uh, attribution of a certain uh, value to use value, he says that the system of political economy does not produce only the individual's labor power that is sold and exchanged. It produces the very conception of labor power as the fundamental human potential, or as being that thing that, you know, with enough of it, and, of course, how it, Marx was taken up in the 50s, right? It's like, you can't abolish labor power completely. But it's about being, labor power being its most productive, you know, maximizing output, minimizing input, if you will. Reducing the working hours and all this. Which is just, a it's just, to me, just how do we maximize or potentiate human um, ability, like it just—it it sounds a lot like, you know, small business type, small, medium, large business, all business type rhetoric, like just simply a pure mirror of that. How do you possibly, you know, suggest such a thing? Suggest, you know, supporting a certain degree of, uh, in if you adopt like a Marxist method saying, like, we can, we're going to reduce the labor hours and people are going to work only the right amount that we need in order to satisfy all the basic needs and some, because basic needs suck, right? Basic needs is just, like, what the stuff that people spend. You spend most of your day starving, not to say that that is what necessarily occurred or is occurring today uh, in countries that identify as... Marxist. But thinking about Marx in these terms, it's difficult to kind of ascertain a universal basic uh, needs or basic requirements. What do those look like? People don't have 
one set of needs, especially if we take Baudrillard seriously and thinking about exchange value, thinking about things not just in their use value as being things that are fundamentally meaningful to people, you know, and this is a scary word for some Marxist thinkers, but thinking of culture, thinking of difference, people can't be kind of put under the same uh, rubric, can't be put under the same, uh, can't, can't be quantified in that way. So it is in this way, and then what Baudrillard says is that Marxism assists the cunning of capital. It convinces men that they are alienated by the sale of their labor power, thus censoring the myth much, the much more radical hypothesis that they might be alienated as labor power, as the inalienable power of creating value by their labor, right? And that's only duplicated in Marx, right? Thinking about what I just said about um, there being a, the right amount of labor, there being the correct way to conduct labor, not actually critiquing labor or challenging it per se, but just making it better, making labor more productive in a sense, make, making labor serve more of um, the interest of labor itself. So it is in this sense that needs and labor work hand in hand, or they affirm one another. Where labor, having become so ingrained in our very logic, and having become uh, indicative, if we accept Baudrillard's hypothesis, of you know labor's antithesis, i.e. Marxism or communism, then it is it it is our ontology, if you will. It is that thing that guides us, that gives us, um, that that essentially creates our characters. So how do needs then sprout out up differently from that, right? And you know this is Marx's project as well, thinking of like the um, superstructure and base, like the economic system on which the superstructure lies. Uh, defines superstructure. It it sends its tentacles up through it, essentially, you know, determining what is going to go on there, how people are going to engage with one another, how people are going to exist, how people are going to live, so on and so forth. But for Baudrillard, that doesn't go away with communism, doesn't go away with a system that relies so heavily on there being uh, a proper use to production or value. So labor in conducting or determining how humans exist, how they how they experience the world, um, of this Baudrillard says that labor alone founds the world as objective and man as historical, especially if we accept the dialectical kind of movement throughout uh, across history, right, arriving at this point, which are terms that are very uh, pernicious, right? In Baudrillard's, Baudrillard's work, thinking of history or objectivity are, are things that are characteristically absurd, right? History is something for Baudrillard that uh, is, is, has always been a simulation, right? History, and he says that um, one of his later texts, the specific one eludes me, but he says that history is granted only to a certain group of people, right? You know, European, Western-type people who have this sort of, that fetishize history, that fetishize there being a before, now, and, and afterwards, this sort of progression, this teleological 
uh, movement that it only affirmed when Marxism claims, you know, locates this a fundamental use value or affirms this kind of objectivity of the world, which is, you know, highly Eurocentric. And it would be, and Baudrillard will come to do this, but thinking about things uh, in epistemologically different terms, how do, how do things change across cultural boundaries, social, political uh, boundaries? How do we view the world differently depending on where we are? Where we can't just say, simply say, you know, under this banner of scientific socialism, this Luxembourgian and, and Marxian type, type rhetoric, there being like the objective world, this objective world can be manipulated in a certain way, right? We can extract the exact number of resources from it and so on and so forth. That for Baudrillard just, you know, reaffirms the notion of there being this kind of individual human being that is different from others, from other uh, species in the world, that has this sort of connection to the world that renders them transcendent, that shows that they can be uh, other than, you know, those things that just occupied the world. So Baudrillard, in order to do this, he quotes um, one passage from Marx that goes as follows. In the last analysis, the burdensome character of labor expresses nothing other than a negativity rooted in the very essence of human existence. Man can achieve his own self only by passing through otherness, by passing through externalization and alienation, of which Baudrillard says that this passage, it shows how the Marxist dialectic in his words can lead to the purest Christian ethic, or an idea that I, I you know, this is kind of my own research, is thinking about how Marx at least how it's taken up in post-human strands and the kind of Deleuzean-type camps. Not necessarily Deleuzean-Guattari themselves, but how they're taken up. How Marx does, it reaffirms capital's um, global reach, right? By saying that, you know, there is a fundamental human set of human needs that can be satisfied. And how, if, you know, you're not with us, you're against us type logic that, that is is there and we, we will get more into that as, as we go along here so even that thing that stands opposed to labor and this is where Baudrillard takes uh, brings up Marcuse specifically where he says of Marcuse who returns to the less puritanical in brackets less Hegelian conceptions which however are totally philosophical in brackets Schiller's aesthetic philosophy who says Marcuse who says that play and display as principles of civilization imply not the transformation of labor, but its complete subordination to the freely evolving potentialities of man and nature. So Baudrillard responds to that in, a, in an interesting way. He says, this realm beyond political economy called play, or that thing that stands outside of political economy, that sort of persistent, naturally resistive um, kind of potential, what it, however it might look, right? What, whatever, whatever play is for one person, you know, doesn't occupy that same kind of place. But he says that this, this realm beyond political economy called play, non-work, or non-alienated labor, is defined as the reign of a finality without end. In this sense, it is and remains an aesthetic, in the extremely Kantian sense, with all the bourgeois ideological connotations which, with which that implies. So although Marx's thought settled accounts with bourgeois morality, it remains defenseless before it's aesthetic. Without ambiguity is more subtle, 
but whose complicity with the general system of political economy is just as profound. So in a sense, Marx, at least how it's taken up Marcuse, uh, maintains there to be this sort of distinction, right? Kind of romanticizing this notion of play, where either uh, Marx is, you know, enmeshed in those, in this is Baudrillard here, in those concrete finalities of use value, or those endless ideal and transcendent finalities. He's caught in either or. He belongs to uh, one camp, or, or maybe not either or, but at least establishing there to be those two camps. And with this, we, we just end up, we remain within the kind of bourgeois problem of freedom, of, uh, I guess, recreation of play, or in Baudrillard's words, uh, the double ideological expression which has been the institution of a reality principle, that is repression and sublimation, or the principle of labor, and its formal overcoming in an ideal transcendence, or play, or non-work, or whatever. So work and non-work here is a revolutionary theme, just by being not work, which, if we maintain this sort of, you know, bi-univocal type split, where one determines the other, just engaging with one does not destabilize the other. In fact, it affirms it. By being in one camp, you're saying that, okay, I am in this camp that is stands opposed to that. And the only reason this camp has validity as this camp or of the side is precisely because it is not that other thing that must be there in order to maintain, in order to, I guess, mirror, if you will, that initial camp or whatever camp you happen to be in. So in a sense, Marx failed to see a whole slew of other things going on. To just name a few that Baudrillard brings up, he says uh, there was discharge, waste, sacrifice. Sacrifice is a big one, and that's something we'll come back to in his uh, symbolic exchange and death. What role sacrifice plays in political economy or, or in economy generally, if I can, you know, subsume cultures that uh, engage in explicit forms of sacrifice, and I say that in quotes, because I, 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 it's not like everyone, every culture has ever engaged in sacrifice in the same ways, but how that serves this sort of, and in quotes, economic type function, when it's just, you know, something that, that happens there, and economy is really just uh, an esoteric term that, that is not as universal as we might, we might think. But, again, I digress. We have sacrifice, we have prodigality, play, and symbolism. These are all terms that eluded Marx. So social wealth for Marx, is, it, it has always has to do with, like, material, right? That's the, you know, dialectical materialism, things that exist in the world, like the table, like the chair, whatever, and what, what role they serve, kind of leaving behind those other, those other factors in, that determine people's existence, that give people meaning, so on and so forth. So in just the ways that you know, Marx does touch on those terms, right? See, you know, of course, that they're there. But the way he engages with them, and the example that Baudrillard gives is in the example of discharge, which isn't to be, like, thought of in relation to bataille, right? Or, um, what's the term? The accursed share or, or whatever, the thing that's left on the, the mattress after, you know, after intercourse. Um, but discharge for Marx, at least according to, Bo uh, to Baudrillard, is still an economic, productive, finalized discharge, precisely because in its mating with the other, it begets a productive force. 
called the earth or matter reaffirms that there there being such a thing a thing that can be seen as such sort of move away from you know thinking about things just in terms of like use value and exchange value uh Baudrillard says that marxism relies on you know historical materialism dialectics most of production labor power and he says through through these concepts marxist theory has sought to shatter the abstract universality of the concepts of bourgeois thought that is nature and progress man and reason formal logic work exchange kind of the, pro the project of like the humanities or whatever kind of tearing apart these uh traditional splits yet for Baudrillard, marxism in turn universalizes them with a critical imperialism as ferocious as the others right and I was getting at this with this, uh, how Marxism does rely on a sort of universalization, right? And that doesn't, isn't just in the service of uh, basic human needs, but it, it extends into those, what I will reluctantly call kind of the higher faculties in, in quotes, thinking about, you know, art, literature, science, reason, whatever, all these things that permeate through Marxist thought. And we're going to get into this more, but Marx is thinking about like pre-industrial people. What do they look like? What do other cultures look like to Marx? And so in and so in Marx, uh, history is for what Baudrillard recognized sees in it. It's transhistorical. It redoubles itself. It redoubles on itself and is thus universalized, because it is the absolute be-all, end-all, if you will. It is the thing that. You know, in the time of Marx, it was inevitable, right? There was no way to think about the progression of history other than in terms of arriving at communism, if you will. Whether it was ref through reform or revolution, right? It, it was it was going to be inevitable, but of course, that we didn't see that occur, per se. Um, but with that, there is the, the re- or the articulation of history as being this teleological thing that moves left to right or whatever, moves through time linearly, which is a very, it's not something that is just held, like, universally. Like, that's a very, I don't want to say privileged, because it's not like they people necessarily benefit just by thinking that. There are the things that come along with it, but it does affirm a sort of, you know, privileging of one mode of being, you know, that being said, a very easy one to digest, thinking about things in terms of linear movement, which is, you know, the, perhaps the easiest way to engage with the world. So in doing so, they set themselves up in expressing, in quotes, an objective reality. They become signs for Baudrillard, signifiers of a real signified, or the missionaries of um, you know, materialism, dialectical materialism, and he goes on to say, and though at the best of times these concepts have been practiced as concepts without taking themselves for reality, they have nonetheless subsequently fallen into the imaginary of the sign or the sphere of truth. They are no longer in the sphere of interpretation, but enter that of repressive simulation, which is an extremely important point. And... I say this often, but it's one that we'll get to in his later texts. But to kind of preface what I'll eventually do, simulation is not the opposite of reality. Simulation is what can often feed into reality. 
simulation often plays with reality. Reality being, like in this context, that identification of an objective real world. So in that sense, it's a repressive simulation because once things are simulated, they're grounded in a sense. I simulate a thing and that thing is then frozen in time. It's given an, an essence through its image. Its image then comes to replace the thing itself, which is always, for Baudrillard, susceptible to change across you know, boundaries, across, I will say, across time, as time moves left, right, up, and down, however which way it moves. It will be susceptible to change, whereas in simulation things are, or in repressive simulation, because I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that there's just one brand of simulation. Uh, in repressive simulation things are given, given that essence. So this, he then says that the scientific and universalist discourse in brackets code. So that's, here's probably one of the closest things to a definition of the term code we get in Baudrillard. Scientific and universalist discourse. That's the code, the thing he's trying to smash, right? So this immediately becomes imperialistic in that if you don't abide by it, like you, you are then seen as being, you know, you don't belong to that the proper scheme or whatever, then says that all possible societies are called on to respond. That is, consult Marxist thought to see if societies, in quotes, without history, are something other than, in quotes, pre-historical other than a chrysalis or larva. Or how do you fare? Like, what kind of use do you have if you, if you don't fall under the banner of this sort of system in ways that we might traditionally understand it? Whereas for Baudrillard, there, there, there is neither a mode of production nor production in primitive societies. There is no dialectical and no unconscious in primitive societies. These concepts analyze only our own societies, which are ruled by political economy. So in a sense, you know, we can apply these sort of methods we've developed and apply them to ourselves, right? Because we are, we are guided by these sort of, these frameworks. But it's as soon as we think that, you know, it's universal, it can be applied to anyone, and the same applies like psychoanalysis, like how does psychoanalysis work across boundaries. And the fact that Baudrillard does this kind of project, and this in this section it's just titled like epistemology. You know, this is the thing that Deleuze and Guattari are kind of resistant of in anti-Oedipus. You know, they say somewhere, they say like, it'd be almost all too easy to apply some epistemological analytic to try and like destabilize um, this kind of eatable fantasy, right? Because it, 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 it would be, and it there's nothing wrong with doing it. Like it, it would, it absolutely gets the point across, and it's something that uh, Baudrillard takes up here. So then Baudrillard, because he, you know, you don't want to just be the person that critiques everything. Baudrillard proposes that in in view of um, Marx's theory of use value or exchange value. We need to start to think about things in terms of a symbolic exchange, which we can criticize the hell out of, because, you know, on one end, you, know, you have Baudrillard saying that Marx is just mobilizing or rendering, rendering productive those elements that are viewed as being, you know, non-productive under capitalism. But then here, here we have Baudrillard using this thing called symbolic exchange that has some odd affinity with, like, in quotes his terms like primitive people which is very problematic and it's not something we can forgive him for but 
alas, we're left with this term like, to deal with it. And it's something he did. Only later on in like 87, he says that, yeah, I'm sorry I did that. That was not a good move. But he says that we must radically, we must propose something radically different. And for him, that is a symbolic exchange or what that might look like. So Baudrillard takes this point to end off his chapter here, coming around full circle, where he says that this, uh, just as Marx thought it necessary to clear the path to the critique of political economy with the critique of the philosophy of the law, the preliminary to this radical change of terrain, that is, the one-two symbolic exchange, is the critique of the metaphysic of the signifier and the code in all its current ideological extent. And he says, for lack of a better term, we call this the critique of the political economy of the sign. You know, in the sense, now he's beginning to employ that, um, I guess, his methodological approach, that thing that he kind of worked towards in for a critique of the political economy of the sign, thinking about things in radically different terms. Now, whether we can interrogate to what extent, you know, they embody an actual degree of radicality, or if they in themselves just mirror the same sort of um, systemic modes of oppression that, you know, Baudrillard claims to move away from is certainly something we can do, but for now, and this is the, the end of his chapter here, um, we'll, we'll leave it at that, and for anyone that made it this long, Thank you for listening, and I hope that you can get something out of this. I'm, I'm a, f I, I really enjoy this text, and I've only, I, I've only gotten through it once before. Now this is only the second time I've revisited it, uh, but it's something I'm. It's, it's not an easy text. It's, it's certainly difficult to get at the nuances of Baudrillard's critique of Marx because they are complicated, and I. My my own relationship with Marx isn't as strong as it could be, so I try to, you know, coming at this, I try to be a little bit careful, because, you know, I don't want to take Marx out of context, and I don't believe that Baudrillard does here, but there, there are certainly things to be said about the points that Baudrillard may miss. But next time we'll go over the, uh, the following chapter, and we'll go and see what Baudrillard has to say about, like, the epistemological implications of Marx's thought or the possible violence it commits. But for now, for anyone, again, for anyone who made it this, th this far, thank you for listening, and if you got any problems, any beef, you know how to leave it. Thanks. Bye.